You are tuned to KVMR, FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's time for the KVMR Evening News for Thursday, January 14th, 2021. For their support, we'd like to thank Hospice of the Foothills Gift and Thrift Stores with four locations in Nevada City, Grass Valley, Penn Valley, also Rough and Ready. All proceeds support end-of-life care for patients and families. Information at hospiceofthefoothills.org. Well, coming up after our local headlines and weather, we'll bring you NPR's national news. Then we'll air this week's edition of Bravehearts, a program to increase your understanding of homelessness. After that, we'll bring you the Grass Valley Downtown Association report with Marnie Marshall. The Public News Service will report on Maine's lawmakers urging Congress to back green banks. And they'll also highlight a new report from the People's Policy Project that says single-payer health care could cover everyone and save $743 billion a year. We'll have an essay from Molly Fisk, and we'll close out our newscast with a commentary from Michelle Green, founder of Black Lives Matter, El Dorado County. Coming up at 6.30 this evening, it's the Energy Report with Martin Webb, and at 7 o'clock we bring you Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. I'm Felton Pruitt. Now here's today's news headlines. Representative Tom McClintock said yesterday that he intends to hold the rioters who attacked the U.S. Capitol responsible and wondered aloud if the incident would have ever happened had lawmakers responded to this summer's chaos in cities across the nation with the same kind of resolve. In a speech on the floor of the House of Representatives, McClintock said, if we had prosecuted BLM and Antifa rioters across the country with the same determination these last six months, this incident may not have happened at all. McClintock will be up for re-election in two years. Yesterday, COVID-19 vaccines became available at some Safeway pharmacies to eligible Placer County residents. Residents in Tier 1A, which include healthcare workers and long-term care residents, can make an appointment to receive the vaccine. The Placer County COVID Vaccine Clinic's webpage says that Public Health partnered with eight Safeways to administer the vaccine to Phase A1, Tier 1, 2, and 3 priority groups. Residents who want to get the vaccine and are eligible should complete a point-of-contact form and register for an appointment. Then the residents should take their medical or prescription insurance card to their appointment, fill out the immunization consent form and CDC pre-vaccination screening form, and remember to take a workplace ID or other documents to indicate employment in an eligible tier. Anyone who shows up for an appointment and is not in an eligible group will be denied a vaccine at this time. In-store vaccine clinics will be available until February 26 and are held Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. The union reports that after 30 years in the business, Paulette Rickard, owner of Paulette's Country Kitchen in Grass Valley, is closing shop. Rickard said the process to sell the building began in September and is still ongoing, with escrow expected to close in late spring. Last Friday, Rickard found out the new developer had plans to convert it into a Wendy's. This past Tuesday, Grass Valley's Development Review Committee approved an application to allow the building at 875 Sutton Way to be converted into a Wendy's. The Grass Valley Planning Commission is expected to take up the item at its February meeting. People are able to submit public comments by calling 274-4390 or emailing public at cityofgrassvalley.com. 
Mono County Supervisor Stacy Corliss was installed yesterday as the chair of the Rural County Representatives of California, the RCRC, a service organization that champions policies on behalf of its 37 member counties. Supervisor Corliss will lead the advocacy organization throughout 2021. In December, Nevada County Supervisor Dan Miller was chosen to serve as first vice chair of the RCRC. Yesterday, Supervisor Miller took the oath of office as administered by Representative John Garamendi, the Democrat from Yolo County, as part of the 2021 Officers of the RCRC. The Rural County's representative of California's Board of Directors is headed by four officers composed of elected county supervisors from the 37 member counties. The RCRC addresses concerns such as wildfire prevention and response, rural broadband development, direct federal COVID-19 aid relief, and water policies. Circle's Wild and Scenic Film Festival is traditionally a five-day flagship festival held annually in Nevada City and Grass Valley, featuring 100-plus films. This year's festival starts today and will be on a 100% virtual platform presented over the course of the next 11 days from January 14th through the 24th. The Wild and Scenic Film Festival is the largest annual fundraiser for the South Yuba River Citizens League, Circle. For tickets and information, log on to wildandscenicfilmfestival.org. There will be no KVMR evening news tomorrow evening, as Elisa Parker will be hosting a preview of the Wild and Scenic Film Festival live from 6 to 7 p.m. here on KVMR. The weather forecast for Grass Valley in Nevada City is calling for partly cloudy skies this evening with lows in the low 50s. On Friday, partly sunny with highs in the mid-60s. Friday night, a few clouds with lows in the mid-50s. Saturday's calling for a mostly sunny afternoon with highs in the upper 60s. And on Sunday in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, it should be partly cloudy with highs in the upper 60s. In Sacramento this evening, partly cloudy with lows in the low 40s. On Friday, intervals of clouds and sunshine with highs in the mid-60s. Friday night, a few clouds with lows in the low 40s. Saturday, mostly sunny with highs in the mid-60s. Saturday night, mostly clear with lows around 40. And on Sunday, in the Sacramento region, partly cloudy with highs in the mid-60s. In Truckee tonight, partly cloudy with lows in the mid-20s. Friday, partly cloudy with highs in the mid-50s. Friday night, cloudy with lows in the mid-20s. On Saturday, mostly sunny with highs in the mid-50s. Saturday night, a few clouds with lows in the mid-20s. And on Sunday, in the Truckee area, partly cloudy with highs in the mid-50s. In Angels Camp this evening, it should be mostly clear with lows in the low 40s. On Friday, partly cloudy with highs near 70. Friday night, mostly clear, lows in the low 40s. Saturday's calling for generally sunny skies with highs in the mid-60s. Saturday night, mostly clear with lows in the mid-40s. And on Sunday in the Angels Camp area, mostly sunny with highs in the upper 60s. That's the KVMR Evening News Headlines. I'm Felton Pruitt. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. The incoming Biden administration has announced its plan to revamp the coronavirus vaccine rollout. As NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports, the president-elect wants to put billions of dollars toward community vaccination sites and mobile units. For the first year of the pandemic, state and local leaders received only $330 million to plan and build an infrastructure for the distribution of a future COVID-19 vaccine. Now that the vaccines are here, the rollout is perhaps predictably going slowly. 
Congress allocated $9 billion for vaccine distribution at the end of 2020, Biden wants to put an additional $20 billion to the effort. The national plan also includes $50 billion for testing, a tripling of the community health workforce, and investment in viral surveillance. The need for that has been made clear by the new variants being identified in the UK, South Africa, and elsewhere. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Mid warnings from the FBI of threats of armed protests by supporters of outgoing President Donald Trump in Washington, D.C., and elsewhere. number of National Guard troops coming to the nation's capital is now being up to around 26,000, and many of those troops will be armed. The FBI has issued warnings about possible protests in conjunction with Biden's inauguration next week, not only in D.C., but also in the state capitals across the country. Amid the latest security threat, coupled with rising numbers of coronavirus cases in Washington, Mayor Muriel Bowser has urged people not to come to the inauguration and to stay home. President-elect Biden is tapping former South Carolina Senate candidate Jamie Harrison to head the Democratic National Committee. Harrison, who began his political career as an aide to South Carolina Congressman James Clyburn, replaces current DNC Chair Tom Perez. Here's NPR Scott Detrow. A source close to the decision confirmed the pick to NPR. Harrison galvanized Democrats across the country and got them to open up their wallets in his Senate race against Republican Lindsey Graham last year. Harrison fell short, but along with Democratic success in neighboring Georgia, his effort highlighted the party's increased focus on mobilizing black voters who may have previously sat out down-ballot races. Harrison was head of the South Carolina Democratic Party before becoming associate chairman of the National Party. He'll replace Tom Perez, who took control of the DNC when it was in tatters following Hillary Clinton's 2016 loss and an email hack that made the party's private emails public. Scott Detrow, NPR News. Washington. A surge in applications for first-time jobless benefits last week is confirming what many economists have been saying, namely a new surge in coronavirus cases is causing companies to lay off workers. Labor Department reporting first-time claims for unemployment benefits last week jumped by 181,000 to 965,000. On Wall Street today, stocks closed lower. The Dow was down 68 points. The Nasdaq fell 16 points today. You're listening to NPR. Former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi has been hospitalized in Monte Carlo for health problems. NPR's Silvia Pajoli reports the 84-year-old tycoon had previously undergone heart surgery and survived prostate cancer. Berlusconi's private doctor, Alberto Zangrillo, told the Italian news agency ANSA that he saw Berlusconi on Monday and had him transferred to a nearby hospital because he didn't think it prudent to bring him to Italy, only 10 miles from Monte Carlo. In September, Berlusconi was hospitalized in Milan after contracting COVID-19, an experience he described as the most dangerous challenge of my life. The former prime minister remains head of a right-wing opposition party. His illness comes as Italy plunged into political chaos after a junior member of the governing coalition quit the government. There has been speculation that some of Berlusconi's lawmakers might help prop up the government to prevent early elections. Silvia Poggioli, NPR News, Rome. Search engine company Google says it has completed a $2.1 billion acquisition of wearable fitness tracking maker Fitbit. Competition or completion rather the acquisition comes 14 months after Google announced the deal, which immediately raised alarms. 
Google makes most of its money selling ads based on information it collects about user interests and whereabouts, something privacy watchdogs worry the company will do to an even greater extent with the information it could obtain from Fitbit and the company's 29 million users. Wearable devices track everything from a person's level of activity to sleep patterns to the foods that they consume. Oil closed up 66 cents a barrel today in New York. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. You are listening to the KVMR Evening News. Welcome to this edition of Brave Hearts. Where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis. We are your hosts, William Wallace and Betty Louise. And these are the Brave Hearts. Clearly, Trina, you are this incredibly intelligent woman. How on earth did you end up living in your car? <laughs> For years. Uh, For years. Yeah. So I was adopted, and I did not know that I had inherited a brain disease called Huntington's. So this is a disease that impacts, it's a brain disease. It attacks the entire brain. And it, it starts like in childhood. So now I knew um, the cognitive testing at Social Security came up with, I have a very pro-working memory, but it's something I've always been dealing with. It was, I did, when I was a ch- young child in school, I did horribly. So what happened is actually the teachers all thought I was stupid, that I was, I remember there was a meeting with us, a school psychologist, and the reason I remember it is that he was uh, a mess the office was, and the thing I, I have to have, like in my own space, is like very well organized and stuff. But I think it's another thing from it's an adaptation from the Huntington's, the lack of working memory. So I always have to keep things organized. But he had this puzzle on the coffee table, and there was a much more interesting puzzle on the shelf. So he, so he's like, so he talked with me and I liked him. Actually, I thought he was my new teacher, but no, that wasn't. <laughs> and uh, so he uh, says, okay, I want you to solve this puzzle. So I figured if I solve that puzzle, they'd give me the other one. And uh, so he, I did easily. And, uh, but then I said, can I have the other one? And he goes, no. <laughs> You know, can't he, can't he ever get a break. <laughs> yeah. So he told the teachers, quite the contrary, she's probably got an IQ between 130 and 140. He figured maybe some sort of developmental issue. But I really didn't start doing well in school until I could, could write things down. Okay, that helped. But it's still, I think it took me until probably intermediate school, junior high, before I started cranking out the grades. But you did end up cranking out the grades because you ended up going to Harvard. Right. I had asked my mother, it was like, a, actually, I think my, my, my version, inverse version of teen rebellion. Most teens develop, you know, rebel outside society, but I was being written off and I felt it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but even in my family, and uh, so I, I asked my mother, I think it was about 12, she was the only person that sure who didn't write me. She was always like very accepting and supportive, which I think helped a lot. She says, well, that would be uh, Harvard. 
Um, I said, that's where I'm going. And she says, well, women go to Radcliffe. I'm like, this is the late 70s. And so I was really into like the whole like Billie Jean King and these women. I was reading about the like the first thing that went to academies. It's like, we can be as tough as you are. And that's kind of the same, I feel in the same way, or, you know, I had that resilience and that confidence. And, and I think in junior high, when I started there, you know, the bully would pick on me and that's what I usually did. I retaliated, but this is when I was in my adult, you know, what, early teens. And uh, so when I was in school, I was the biggest kid. Oh, that was the other thing I think that helped. I was always the biggest kid until probably like junior high when the, you know, some of the boys would catch up with me. And so, you know, somebody bullied me and bothered me. I just couldn't know. <laughs> Those days, this was like the early 70s. Bullying, it was like, don't be a tattletale. There wasn't, you know, social thing about not doing anything about the police. Even when, you know, some of these yard monitors were told. And, mm -hmm. and yeah, I remember just, but fine, you won't support me, I'll be, you know, and I, I would give lectures. You just to took care of yourself, it sounds like. You just said, uh -huh. you know, I'm going to break away from the image of women right now. I'm going to go to Harvard. I'm, if somebody's going to bully me, I'm going to clean their clock. <laughs> <laughs> Although as I got older, then we're, Emma Von Lederman, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. you need to get your, you need, and she was right. When, yeah. I, when I started doing that middle school, she was like, you need to get your act together. Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well and be kind. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please visit calhum.org. It's time for the Grass Valley Downtown Association Report with Marnie Marshall. Thanks for joining us, Marnie. It's been a while, but uh, Grass Valley opening up again. Yes. Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to the Purple Pier again, which means that restaurants can do outdoor dining, and of course, retail is open, and you can get haircuts again. So that's great for business, for everybody, and the weather is really gorgeous, so... What's happening is that, yeah, you can come down and you can do takeout or you can dine on the picnic tables and tables at Mill Street where it's closed to motorized traffic. When we went into the stay-at-home order last month, everybody left their tents up, so everybody was ready to get going again, all the restaurants and stuff. So I guess it's just back to business as abnormal. Yes, we all keep pivoting, and, you know, we so appreciate all the love and support people have given to our downtown just really appreciated the merchants have told me they have felt the love and support that more people shopped local this year than ever so it's really helpful you know all those people are employing people all those businesses support our nonprofits and their fundraisers so big circle of love going on here in nevada county thank you the big news is restaurants in grass valley now open outside yes and in both of nevada city and grass valley Traditionally, right now, is the Wild and Scenic Film Festival, Circle's Wild and Scenic Film Festival. So this year, everything is online, and we want to make sure that they get love and support, too, because typically January is a slower month, and they bring activism and art and patrons 
to our county and just know that there are a lot of great films to be seen online from the comfort of your own home. So just go to Wild and Scenic Film Festival and you can look at all of that. And in Grass Valley, people are still opening new businesses. We have a new business called Lost and Found and they are having their opening this week and they are on Church Street. So right next to the Everhart Hotel, it is a store that is basically a setting of art. Like everything is set up beautifully, like couches and clothing. It's like you're walking into a dining room, but everything is for sale. So that's called Lost and Found, and you should just come down and see what's new and happening downtown. All right. Well, that that's really good news. We thank you, Marnie. And we should mention, too, it's wildandscenicfilmfestival.org if you want to check it out, because there's a lot of great films happening the next 11 days. One more thing to add is that there is an Energy Action Plan community survey that we would love everybody to participate in. And you can find that at mynevadacounty.com and search for Energy Action Plan, and you'll find the survey there. So important that everybody take a look at that. What's the purpose of the survey? Survey is to gauge what people know about the Energy Action Plan and how likely they are to take advantage of programs that can help your home become energy efficient and save people money and do good things for the environment. Thanks, Marnie. We've been talking with Marnie Marshall from the Grass Valley Downtown Association, and the stores are open. Head down to Grass Valley. And on another note, I was walking through downtown Nevada City this afternoon, and I saw the folks over at Golden Era setting up the back parking lot for dining tomorrow through Sunday, and I walked by the Miner's Foundry, and Gretchen was out there setting up, and the Miner's Foundry will be open this evening and continue being open with their cafe throughout the weekend. Molly Fisk observations from a working poet. Once you've written 500 radio essays and been applauded for several days, what can you possibly do for an encore? Some things don't have encores, they just continue. Chop wood, carry water. After the ecstasy, the laundry. It was a little awkward that me writing number 500 was interrupted by a terrorist invasion of the U.S. Capitol, That threw me off, but I rallied. I'm hoping nothing extreme takes place today. And I don't have anything useful to say about the insurrection. Believe me, it's all been said. One of the difficulties of being a writer these days is how much we're all experiencing the same upheaval. Everyone used to have their particular subjects, water polo, giraffe breeding, Bulgarian movie reviews, climate change. But now we have the same subjects, and at the same time, as each new event hits the fan. Plus, all the non-writers take to social media and write about those topics, too. There was so much opinion and personal expression going on when the pandemic started that I couldn't write for months. I squeezed out a radio essay each week, avoiding current events as much as possible. But no poems got born or were revised. Alone in my house, the public discourse was so fractious and the panic so raw, I couldn't even think in sentences. I became monosyllabic just talking to myself. This is one of the drawbacks of an art form made from the common language. 
Same reason obstetricians at cocktail parties tell you they're going to write a novel when they retire. I don't go around telling people I'm going to deliver babies when I retire because I never trained in medicine. They haven't trained in writing either, but because we all use the language day in and day out, they feel both competent and entitled. They're wrong, but you can't tell them that. They don't believe it. Far be it for me to tell people not to write anyway. I've spent much of my life encouraging everyone to write more because it's good for you. But this year, with the virus, the volume is really deafening. In local news, right now it's raining. An unforecast quarter inch at dusk, but it still counts as rain, which we badly need. Apparently no red newts are appearing in this, their season to writhe around on muddy hiking trails in knots and piles of glorious copulation. It's too dry. So fewer baby newts this year? No newts? And then what? Day after week after mile after acre, across the globe it just grows. The climate crisis. Our crisis. Everyone I know is hoping fervently that 2021 will be a good year, that last year was just a terrible one-off, and there's a way back to what we were used to, what we thought was normal. I don't mean to bum you out, but I think that ship has sailed. It's a delusion to comfort us as we face unfathomable change. Do you remember what fathom means? It's a measurement, originally from fingertip to fingertip, when your arms are open wide, but now generalized to six feet. Before the year 1600, it was a synonym for embrace. Then it morphed into a way to measure the depth of water, how many six feetses to the bottom of that harbor or this river. Some water is so deep, though, you can't measure it. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Welcome to World Ocean Radio. I'm Peter Neal, director of the World Ocean Observatory. Standing on shore, we perceive the ocean as locality, the curve of the beach, the limit of the harbor, and as universality, the infinite inclusion beyond a distant horizon. We can look at the calculation of value in a similar way. We can understand capital as a monetized measure of value in currency or bitcoin or corporate shares established through an equation of research and production costs, price, and profit. It is a calculation of the value of goods, and sometimes services, which is the lifeblood of our global economy, raw material things, built things, traded things, in a cycle of speculation and return. But this is a localized calculation, fundamentally circumscribed by what it leaves in, and most importantly by what it leaves out, factors that do exist but beyond the horizon. There is such a thing as natural capital, and there is a growing movement to understand key missing elements in order to understand the true cost of things in the context of both financial and social outcomes. 
thus of the true price we pay over time, suddenly inclusive of the cost of obsolescence, waste, irreplaceable raw materials, workforce health, and community impact on measures of human well-being. These things, with real financial valuation, become serious consideration in terms of investment prospectus, development cost, private and public decision-making, and estimated return. Natural capital is formally defined as the stock of renewable and non-renewable natural resources, energy, plants, animals, air, wind, water, soils, and minerals, that must also be included in any benefit analysis of production, actual cost, and real consequence for human benefit worldwide, all now mostly overlooked and left out of the equation. There is a growing movement, a natural capital approach, that is a means for identifying and quantifying natural resources and associated ecosystem goods and services, as well as a system of ecosystem accounting that is a statistical numerical means to track the extent and condition of ecosystems affected by conventional investment, its profit or loss, and inclusive of benefit or detriment beyond such delimited financial perspective. Suddenly, we have the capacity to see beyond the horizon and understand the full integration of traditional capital and natural capital, just as we now understand an integrated economy across the sea that connects all things. Let me describe two hypothetical examples, suggested, however, from local experience. The first involves two major aquaculture plants for salmon production proposed for two towns some 50 miles apart along the main coast. One is a closed-circuit system, processing salt water from the adjacent harbor, filtering and extracting byproducts for off-site disposal, proposed on a site of a derelict paper mill, bankrupted and abandoned as a result of market competition, with the loss of some 300 jobs, and serious decrease in property tax revenue. The second uses similar technology, but extracts water from the local aquifer, proposed for an inland, undeveloped site with comparable production capacity, employment, tax benefit, and disposal requirements. Both are subject to strict and time-consuming municipal and state review for environmental permits. The first gets permitted and welcomed. The second is delayed and opposed by town residents fearful of the impact on groundwater and aquifer supply. The difference can be reduced to the value of social impact, the positive financial outcome measured against the potential threat to a key natural resource. The second calculation under ecosystem accounting would have had to include the value of the potential loss, the devastating impact on the community of an overstressed water supply, and the financials would inevitably be different, even though the projects appear similar on the surface. The second example involves the harvest of seaweed, where I live rapidly becoming a small-scale, ocean-dependent business opportunity for new workers or for additional revenue for fishers during the closed season of their primary harvest. Again, two approaches. One operated by a foreign company, providing a boat and tools to day workers, paid for maximum volume generated by cutting or scraping the weed near or at its base, limiting its rejuvenation and future growth. The other, operated by individual fishers with their own equipment, again paid by volume, but limited to cuttings no deeper than 16 inches above weed base, allowing for quick renewal and sustainable future harvest. Ecosystem accounting would incorporate the potential of continuing harvest in its analysis in a way that would inform policymakers and regulators to prohibit one approach and encourage the other. Water and weeds, enterprise and profit, locality sustained, universality expressed as policy and natural value as a new entry on the capital balance sheet. We will discuss these issues and more 
in future editions of World Ocean Radio. Next up on the KVMR Evening News, we have a commentary from Michelle Green, the founder of Black Lives Matter, El Dorado County. My name is Michelle Green, and I'm the founder of Black Lives Matter, El Dorado County. Our group was founded in July of 2020 in response to the killing of George Floyd and to the increasing racial tensions here in El Dorado County. Our collective community has been standing against hatred, racism, and bigotry for many months. In July, we stood in solidarity on the courthouse steps against neo-Nazi flyers that were plastered all over our town to remind people that hate has no place here. In August, we had an action to honor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his iconic I Have a Dream speech to remind the community we continue to fight the same battles Dr. King fought. We are actively fighting to have the noose, a well-known symbol of racism, violence, and hate, removed from our city's logo. On December 5th, the Proud Boys formalized in our community, hijacking a Toys for Tots event where the group, along with a Santa Claus, all displayed a white power hand symbol on Placerville's Main Street. Members of the group wore hoodies with an image of a body hanging from a tree on a noose, just like the noose on our city's logo. The community responded by holding two events in a week's time, pushing back against their presence and ideology. Currently, District 2 Supervisor George Turnboo is attempting to push through the individual identified as the Proud Boy Santa to a seat on the Veterans Affairs Commission. This is unacceptable. While the systemic racism here in El Dorado County continues to reveal itself, what is also coming to the surface are the many who support social justice and racial equality. Because groups like ours are actively and visibly working to change our community, people are now feeling comfortable to stand up and to speak out. We need to continue to stand up and speak out. We are holding a Martin Luther King Jr. Day event at the El Dorado County Courthouse in Placerville on Monday, January 18th from 3.30 to 5 p.m. to celebrate the life and the legacy of the man. This is a socially distanced event and masks are required. To quote Dr. King, now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the darkness and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time. I thank you for your time. And for more details, please go to at BLMEDC. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the speaker and not necessarily those of KVMR's board, staff, volunteers, or supporters. If you would like to submit a commentary, please email news at kvmr.org. Well, that's going to do it for our newscast for this evening. The KVMR Evening News is produced by Paul Emery Audio. Coming up next, it's the Energy Report with Martin Webb, and at 7 o'clock we bring you Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. I'm Felton Pruitt. I hope you have a fine evening.